you know, a lot of parents, I'm sure, pray for their kids at night. Um, you may pray for your kids all day long. You may pray for them when they're doing something crazy. You may pray when you know they're going to do something different. But um, I'm sure a lot of parents, you know, maybe maybe not every single night. You may not have devotions. You may not have like a Bible study. But maybe when you lay down, if, whether you've prayed with your kids, maybe you lay down, you kind of lay your head on the pillow. You, you think, oh, God, you know, touch my kids, keep them safe, bless them, you know, keep them safe tomorrow as they go to school. Maybe you pray on the way to school. Maybe you, Maybe your kids are grown now, but you pray for them and they're not in the house anymore, but you just pray God's blessings and favor on their lives. And my brother tells a story. My brother's younger than me by a couple years, and he tells a story about the prayers that he prayed over his oldest daughter, Sadie, um, when she was much smaller. They still pray every night. It's kind of their tradition. They'll pray. And his, his, their youngest daughter, Nora, is a little bit younger, um, not really old enough to really pray with him, but he'll pray for her as well. But he prays with Sadie. And if, if I have the story correctly, when she was a little bit younger, he would pray and she would repeat back to him the prayer that he was praying. And so he would, you know, he would pray this very simple prayer and she would repeat these simple phrases back to her. And it would go something like this. Dear Jesus. And then Sadie would say, Dear Jesus. He'd say, you know, thank you for Sadie. Thank you for Sadie. We pray you'd keep us safe tonight. We pray you'd keep us safe tonight. Thank you for mommy and daddy. Thank you for mommy. And she would just repeat every little phrase. And he would keep going, you know, thank you for our family. Thank you for our family. Thank you for our friends. Thank you for our friends. You know, give us a good day tomorrow. Give us a good day tomorrow. And Jesus. And Jesus. Don't let Sadie, don't let Sadie marry a bum, marry a bum. (laughs) And that was his legitimate prayer. I think he still prays it. Now, I didn't understand it when we had our first three boys. We had we have three boys. We have eight, six, four. All right. So pray for us there. But then we we now have a two year old daughter and I totally get that prayer now. Because I've met some of the two-year-old boys in her classes. Like, I'm sure it's none of your kids. It's the other kids that go here and, and to the, the schools and stuff. But like, I don't know that I want her hanging out with some of these two-year-olds in her class. And so now I have names and faces to pray. Again. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I don't know if you've prayed prayers like that. I don't know if you currently pray prayers like that or you have prayed prayers like that. But, you know, I know, I know for parents and for families and for, you know, family itself is a funny thing. Family is a really funny thing because in this room, there's a lot of different family groups, a lot of different family makeups. You go outside of this room, it's even more so than that. But, you know, up to a certain point, maybe in the early part of this century, though not every family was exactly the same, there was a cookie cutter model for what the the family roles look like. And so, you know, up into the, the, the early 20th century, we saw, you know, the mom and the dad, this married couple with maybe two kids. Uh, And that was whether that was the reality or not, that was the perception of the reality that that's what the family unit looked like. And so as as the, the culture changed and we saw all kinds of things changing within our culture, we saw things begin to change in the family unit. And we saw these family units now that had a variety of different makeups. And and into the latter part of the 20th century and now the early part of the 21st century, we see family units that you can't really put a, a cookie cutter model on any of them. Because now you see, even in what would be described, and I'm doing air quotes here because I don't even know that there's any traditional model. Even in the traditional family model that we do see, families are having more children now. So it's not mom, dad married with two children. Now I think the ratio is like three and a half kids. I'm not sure where the half falls in there. I think Andy Griffith told Opie it was a ratio. And then Opie prayed for poor old Horatio, whoever that was. So you know, I don't know where that half child, but like three to three and a half kids is now the normal in that traditional model. 
But then you have divorce and other kinds of circumstances that have created single parent families and single parent homes. And then you have the remarriage after divorce where kids are involved that sometimes now brings in blended families. And so you have the mom maybe who has some kids and the dad who has some kids and they join together in marriage and they bring these kids along with them. And so now you have these blended families and where divorce has occurred, sometimes you have multiple different blended families coming together where kids are shared in steps and halves. And I mean, you've got all kinds of things that are there. In the, in the things of our culture now, you have same-sex family units as it relates to how those families are formed. You, you have all kinds of other, I mean, I can't even, I tried to come up with all kinds of different scenarios. You have grandparents raising their grandchildren as a family unit. You have these communal, in, in little pockets, you have these communal families where multiple families live together. And then all of the people that are over a certain age, they all raise the kids in that family. And so there's a lot of different makeups to family. And so I wouldn't even begin today, as we do look at the idea of families, I wouldn't begin today to try to present some type of cookie-cutter model for here is the absolute truth related to every single specific family unit, no matter what circumstances you have. But I do believe that there are some unifying things around which we can build some principles for our families. We're continuing our Storyteller series. We've been tracking for several weeks. We only have one more week next week where we'll conclude this series. But it's been in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, grab that. You don't have a Bible, but you have a smartphone or a tablet or something with you. You can just go to a Bible app there um, or uversion.com. If you don't have an app on your phone, you can look at the Bible there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. And we are going to skip around a little bit. So we'll spend some time in Hebrews 11. And then we're going to jump back to the Old Testament Um, Really, the books of Genesis and Deuteronomy, if you want to try to find those, if you're not familiar, you can go ahead and skip there and maybe hold a finger in those places so that we can uh, be together. These scriptures, for the most part, will be on the screen. I want us to read in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. And this is what it says. Verse 20 and 21 is what we're reading today. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Now, Isaac is the father of Jacob and Esau. There's a ton there. It's an incredible story. Jacob and Esau are twins, and there's some fighting even in the womb. And, you know, I mean, if, if you believe in the truth of Scripture, they're kind of even fighting about who's going to be born first. It's really incredible. But by faith, Je- Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Even that blessing ceremony has some incredible parts to that narrative. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, one of those that's referenced there in the previous verse, Jacob, one of those sons who later would be called Israel, um, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. Joseph was a son of Jacob. So he blessed now his grandchildren, Joseph's sons, and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. So now I kind of stopped and started. So I want to read all these two, these both of these verses together. One Kind of run shoot through here. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. I love that in the midst of this faith chapter. I mean, we, we started this chapter and we started this series really looking at these incredible faith things. If you remember, if you've been with us any length of time over this series, we've talked about by faith, Noah built an ark so that humanity could be saved, Right? righteousness could be saved in the midst of rampant unrighteousness. We talked about, by faith, Abraham sacrificed his son, Isaac, referenced here. Um, He went to sacrifice his son, and God intervened. But we, we see these incredible things of faith. And then right here in verse 20 and 21, the thing that they are commended for is praying. 
blessing, right? I mean, to me, I, I, don't, I don't know where this fits in the narratives that we've been reading if you jump back and forth. But by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And so there's something here that doesn't seem to make sense to me. And I'm hoping that today we can really unpack that. But I want to go to the second verse before I get to the first verse. We want to start with verse 21 because I just love the fact. We talked about the changing dynamics of the family unit. I love the fact that in verse 21, Jacob is commended for blessing his grandchildren. Jacob is commended for blessing his grandchildren. And it said, if you, I've read it a couple times, but by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. I want to look at Genesis chapter 47. So I told you to kind of maybe flip there. Genesis 47 is where we find this part of the narrative. Genesis 38 through Genesis 50 is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is a, is a huge chunk of the book of Genesis. When you think of all the other stories that are contained in just really brief passages in Genesis and then in other parts of the, New, of the Old Testament, the story of Joseph takes up a huge chunk of that early, early writing. But I think it's an incredible part to the story because it really connects the covenant of Genesis 11 where God gives a covenant to Abraham and the fulfillment of that covenant throughout really the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the story of Joseph is is an incredible story. And if you remember this story, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were setting up the story of Moses. But if you know anything about the story of Joseph, Joseph's a guy who has a dream. Joseph has a dream. His brothers hate him. He's got this coat of many colors. His brothers try to kill him. But one of his brothers says, no, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him. I mean, after all, we can make some money off this. Let's spare his life. He ends up in, in prison after a lot of other circumstances. He has the ability, because we know of his dream, he has the ability to interpret dreams through the power of God. And he interprets the dream of Pharaoh, who is in control and power in those days in Egypt. And so after, after helping to interpret this dream, it's, hey, there's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be seven years of famine. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of helping sustain the population of Egypt. They're going to store up things during the seven years of plenty. They're going to have things stored up when the seven years of famine come. And eventually, the brothers who thought Joseph was dead, those brothers come back to find Joseph because they come looking for food during the famine. And so they come back and they are eventually confronted with the idea that this is the brother that they sold into slavery. That's the story of Joseph in a nutshell. And I'm talking about, I could, I could talk on that for like three months, but that in a nutshell is it. So Joseph's brothers eventually see that it's him, he reveals himself to him. They go after, with Joseph's instructions, to get their father, the rest of their family, all their belongings, and bring them to Egypt where Joseph is. And because Joseph has so much power and authority, Joseph and his family are given free reign to kind of set up and do anything they want to in that land and eventually joseph's dad is dying and this is what it says in genesis 47 verses 29 through 31 genesis 47 this is what it says and when the time drew near that israel we're talking about jacob must die he called his son joseph and said to him if now i have found favor in your sight Put your hand under my thigh and promise. This is a, a way that they would make an oath with one another. And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. So remember, they were in Egypt. They had come there out of their, their land that they lived. Out of their, the, the land that they were established in, really, in the land uh, where, and we'll talk about this in a second, where his ancestors were buried in Canaan. But he says, don't bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. 
Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, Joseph talking now, I will do as you have said. And he said to me, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So that last line is connected to the part in Hebrews 11 that said he worshipped leaning on his staff. The word staff there and the head of his bed, that's the same phrase. So we're talking about he's, he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And he makes Joseph his son promise that he would not be buried in Egypt. And when Joseph affirms that oath, he affirms that promise, then what happens is that, as you can imagine, you know, Jacob's tired, he's again on his deathbed, and so he kind of rolls into the bed, and and, and some scholars say in prayerful worship, and some just say in in kind of angst almost, it's just this emotion coming out of him, he worships God, that he knows he won't be buried in Egypt. Why would that be a big deal to him? Because he knows Egypt is not his home. It was a temporary home for him so that he could be reunited with his son and his family. But he knows that the promises of God are connected to the place where his fathers are buried. Okay, that's in Canaan. Now, Canaan's important because eventually we know that the people of God are going to end up in Canaan. They're going to end up in the promised land. The promised land is the place that Moses leads the Hebrew people towards. He doesn't get to go to the land, but Joshua carries them into the land. And so what we understand is that the end of his life, after he makes this promise, he is now going to bless Joseph's sons. He does this really cool thing. He kind of crosses his hands. So there was a, a way in the Hebrew culture that blessing would happen. You take the oldest son, you bless him with the greatest blessing. Then you take the subsequent sons and you bless them with a different blessing. But they are all going to serve the oldest son. The oldest son becomes the head of the family at the death of the father. All right, and I know we're drinking out of a fire hydrant here, but this really does all make sense eventually, all right? So the, the, the oldest son usually gets the head blessing out of the whole family. But that's not what Jacob does to his grandsons. He takes his hands and he crosses them, and he gives the favored blessing to the younger of those sons. And so we, we have seen this because even in the first verse of Hebrews 11 that we read earlier, we saw that Isaac and Esau... We, we saw uh, Jacob and Esau, we saw that blessing even happen where the younger son gets. I used to say to my mom all the time when I felt like my younger brother was getting his way, I would say, what is this, some kind of cross-handed blessing, right? I know that's a church joke and nobody laughed except other church people, but like to me it was hilarious, okay? Because we grew up in a pastor's home. My dad had preached on this and I used to just be so upset. I'd be like, why does Jason get his way? What is this, some kind of cross-handed blessing? So younger siblings, you can um, know that you're getting an unfair advantage. So the grandparent here blesses his grandchildren. Now, here's what I would say to that today. I don't, I'm not a grandparent yet. We'll be one day, hopefully to a bajillion grandkids. That's why we had multiple kids. So one day we could spoil our grandkids. So that's not why we had our kids, but you understand what I'm saying. Grandparents have this unique ability. I love, I love my grandparents. Grandparents have this unique ability to connect the stories of the past with the stories of the future. Have you now or have you ever just kind of sat at the feet, sat around with your grandparents or maybe somebody of that generation, the generation of your grandparents, and they tell you the stories of like their day? They tell you the stories of when they were growing up. They tell you the stories, I mean, crazy stories. I mean, stories that you go, that didn't really happen. And it's like, yeah, it did. This is an amazing story. Because they have the ability to connect the stories from the past. Their, Their relevant stories to stories that I can't sometimes even connect with. But then if I'm, if I'm kind of wearing my thinking cap, I'm really in the moment listening to that. I go, you know what? I've got some stories. There's no way my grandkids are going to believe. 
I've got, my kids don't even believe that there was a day before the internet, right? They, they don't even understand. Last night we took my phone out and we video chatted with like my dad hundreds of miles away. This is still cool technology to me. My kids, it's all they've ever known, right? My two-year-old walked in today with a purse on, all right? Which is scary in and of itself. But the other day we couldn't find my wife's cell phone. So I called her cell phone. You know where it was ringing? In my two-year-old's purse. She had taken the cell phone. It was hers now. Because this is, this is reality to her. We, when we have a phone, we carry our phone in our purse. I don't because obviously that... Okay, so you understand that there's just a new reality for them that's different than the reality that I was exposed to. The rea- so grandparents have this really unique ability to connect the stories of the past to the stories of the future. They're, they're really, I consider them to be the bridge. Because if I don't listen to their stories, I don't have those stories of my family heritage to pass on. My kids may think that the story started with me. Or maybe the people that they know. But I've got a grandfather who my kids never met. Sadly for me, my mom passed away before, my youngest, before our youngest child, my daughter, was even born. And so there are stories that I need to make sure I know about our family heritage, our family history, things that I know now about my family because I sought those stories out that allow me to help bridge my daughter's understanding of her reality to the days before she was here. And I think if we're not careful, younger generations, and I include myself in this, younger generations sometimes lack the desire Or really the awareness that those stories exist and that they matter to us. That they matter to us. The older generation is called by God to transfer knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to those coming after them. Titus chapter 2. You don't have to flip there. I just want to reference this really quickly. Titus chapter 2, verse 2 through 6 says this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There's a larger passage here that's being taught, but it's the idea that older men and women have a role to invest in younger men and women or they're not going to know what's expected of them. They're not going to know. I'm not going to know. I mean, how many of you, I'm going to say ladies, but if you're a guy and you like to cook, that's great. I'm a terrible cook and my kids know when I'm the one that's cooked. But I'm going to say ladies because it's just the easiest way. But how many of you like your favorite recipes, your grandmother's fill in the blank, right? Your mom's fill in the blank. I've referenced it before. I don't mean to make this in any way, this emotional connection to this part of it. But one of the saddest things for us about my mom's passing is we couldn't find her recipe box. She knew in her head how to make all the things that we love to eat, and we couldn't find the recipe box. And there were some recipes that Corey and my sister-in-law, Andrea, and maybe me and my brother, if we're careful and we remember long enough, and maybe her sister or her mom or others that were able to kind of know, here's how you make this. and here. So these things related to our family heritage, we we were missing those because we hadn't asked the questions. How do you make that? You know that my favorite whatever, what what ingredient do you put in it that makes it taste like that? And not like the junk that, you know, I'm just, okay, so you're with me now, right? This is what it says. This is what I would say. Likewise, the younger generation have to understand that they don't possess all the knowledge and wisdom needed to make everything happen. 
So again, I'm going to tell on myself here, but sometimes I think I'm pretty smart, right? I think my generation, we're pretty knowledgeable. You ask me a question and I can find it really quickly. I have Google in my pocket, right? And so sometimes if I'm not careful, I miss the wisdom that I can't Google. I miss the information that's not available to me except by having the conversations with those who came before me. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, a, is an awesome, awesome passage. It's, again, just this incredible part of the narrative of the people of, of Israel. This is what it says. The Lord promised your ancestors. God is speaking now through the, through, through the prophet to his people. The Lord promised your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you this land. Talking about the promised land. This is after Joseph, after Jacob dies. This, they're headed towards the promised land, but they haven't gotten there yet. God promised that he would give you this land. Now he will take you there and give you large towns with good buildings that you didn't build and houses full of good things that you didn't put there. And the Lord will give you wells that you didn't have to dig and vineyards and olive orchards that you didn't have to plant. But when you've eaten so much that you can't eat anymore, don't forget it was the Lord who set you free from slavery and brought you out of Egypt. Worship and obey the Lord your God with fear and trembling and promise that you will be loyal to him. You know what this says to me? None of us got here by ourselves. You're drinking from wells you didn't dig. You're eating from orchards you didn't plant. Figuratively, even though there's literal consequences here, you're living in houses you didn't build. Right? See, you can't know this. There's, there's no way for you to know this. But when you are looking at me today, standing on this stage, trying my best to clearly or not so clearly articulate what I believe God's word is saying to us. I'm not standing here by myself. I stand here on the shoulders of Henry Isaacs and Mylon Boyd. They're my great-grandfathers. Preachers of the gospel, church planters, who prayed for the coming generations to follow in their footsteps of loving God and honoring him. I stand here on the shoulders of my grandparents, YZ and Judy Isaacs. Yes, his real first name is YZ. doesn't stand for anything. Paul Lanier, who is my grandfather, who passed away when I was a teenager, and Shirley Lanier, who's still living. I stand here on this stage on the shoulders of my parents, Bill and Kathy Isaacs. These people, and aunts and uncles and cousins and other people that I may not even know their name, They prayed for me. They prayed for me. When I didn't even know they were praying for me, they prayed for me. They set an example for me. Some of the people that I'm talking about, I sat in services and listened to them preach. And some of what you hear me say, I learned from them. I sat under my mom and dad's ministry growing up. We traveled around doing ministry, but my dad was my pastor because even though we traveled around, I was always in service where he was preaching almost every Sunday. He was my pastor. And I get that that, in some respects, I consider myself to be lucky in that regard. But what it tells me is that I didn't get here by myself and I'm not standing here by myself. And I think sometimes we forget that. And I don't think that's just a younger generation thing. But there is definitely a cultural trend that makes us believe we are self-made men and women. That we got here because we're smart. 
We got here because we worked hard. And yes, many of us are smart and many of us work very hard. And I'm not just talking about spiritual legacy. Maybe you're the first generation Christian in your family. But maybe there was somebody that you don't even know about that was praying for you. Maybe there was a little old lady that lived next door that saw potential in you. Maybe it was something more tangible or more practical than just the spiritual application, but you got your work ethic by watching your dad work hard. You know as a wife how to submit to a husband because you watched your mom submit to your dad. I'm afraid sometimes we miss the practical application because we don't think we have something to learn from those who came before us, but you did not get here on your own. And here's the reality for us today. Families create the future. Families create the future. I don't know if you're like me, but over the last several months, it's hard to turn anywhere in a supermarket or if you have a news app or whatever without some reference to this baby that was about to be born and has now been born in England. Right? Prince William, Princess Kate, Catherine, I think they call her now. I don't know if you know this, but she was pregnant for a while. And then she had a baby. And I can't for the life of me figure out why any of us care that aren't British. Except that there's something I believe deep inside of us that's connected to the idea of the continuation of lineage. Now, maybe it's our celebrity culture. Maybe there's something intangibly connecting us because of Diana But I believe deep inside of us, we understand that family creates the future. And there was a little boy born. And they announced it via a press, electronic press release, and they wrote it on a frame or something. Right? My wife watched all this. That's the only way I know. But they wanted everybody that wanted to know to know that the line was continuing. That the future was still certain. Because the line had continued. Family creates the future. And I know there's some of you in this room this morning, you don't have children. Maybe you wanted to, maybe you haven't decided you want to have children yet. Maybe you're still praying about it, you're still thinking about it. Maybe you're not married, maybe you're unsure. I don't know all the circumstances for you, but I don't think this is just related to children. You're a part of a family. You are the future of your family. Because families create the future. I want us to jump back as we kind of wrap this up. Back to Hebrews 11. It's where we started. This is the message translation of the same two verses that we started. There's some language here that I think is really important for us. It says this. By an act of faith, Isaac reached into the future as he blessed Jacob and Esau. By an act of faith, Jacob on his deathbed blessed each of Joseph's sons in turn, blessing them with God's blessing and not his own. So so Isaac reached into the future as he blessed Jacob and Esau. And Jacob blessed Joseph's sons with God's blessing and not his own. We're going to do something very practical here in the next few minutes. We've got children that are in another place in this building when we gather. If you're a parent, you obviously know that. You go and drop them off or check them in and send them on their way. 
I know not all of our kids are here today. Not all of our families are represented. School's still getting kicked off. It's raining. It's been a long weekend. I get all that. But we have some kids here today. Maybe 40 kids or so at a different age groups. We're going to bring some of them into this service. We're going to bring our preschoolers and our grade schoolers in. And they're coming in now. And here's who I'm going to ask to join them down front. If you're a middle school student, a high school student, or a college student, I'm going to ask you to stand and come to the front right now. We're not going to do anything to make you uncomfortable. We're going to not attempt to do anything to make you uncomfortable. Middle school, high school, college students, I want you to come to the front. We've got our preschool kids and our grade school kids coming in at this point as well. We'll let them kind of get set. And then we're going to do something else. Hey, kids. We're glad you're here. We don't always get to see you. But we're glad you're here. I don't know what that is. If you're in the room and you're sitting down, I want you to look up here. You may not have kids standing up here. But if you attend this church at all, you have kids standing up here. And I don't mean any disrespect to any middle school, high school, or college student that I'm calling a kid, okay? We're just lumping everybody in together today to talk about the next generation. Hebrews chapter 11 says to me, That we have the ability by faith to help bless the next generation. To reach into the future and to call God's favor and his blessing on the next generation. And to say to them, listen, we didn't get here on our own and you didn't get here on your own. And you may not understand all of that, but we want God's blessings on you. And listen, most of you guys that are sitting down here, you're standing down here, you've already started school or you're about to start school in some way. Maybe it's preschool, maybe it's kindergarten or fourth grade or seventh grade or you're in 11th grade this year. You're about to graduate. You're a senior. Maybe you're in college. Maybe you're in dual enrollment. Maybe you're homeschooled and you don't know where you fit in that grade, but you've got homework every day. You just don't know, right? But guess what? We want to pray something very specific over you. We want to pray for you. We want to pray that God would bless you. And what I mean by that is we want to pray that God would help lead you and guide you and direct you. And that when you walk into your school, you know you're not walking in by yourself because God is going with you into that school. That you've got a mom and a dad and an aunt and an uncle and grandparents. You've got a church that loves you. And that wants you to know that we think you're pretty special. And that not only that, but we believe that God has an incredible future for you. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. If you're in our congregation, I want you to stand. And again, if you're comfortable with this, I just want you to kind of put your hands this way. Maybe lift your hands this way. You're just, you're saying, I can't get down to the front or we're not going to come all down to the front because of the kids down here. But I just want to kind of signify that I'm joining in this prayer and we're going to pray. All right. And kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you can do this without hurting somebody, I want you to just kind of put your arm around somebody or maybe put your arm on somebody's shoulder, maybe hold hands with a friend. All right. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. I thank you for these kids. I thank you for these students. God, I thank you for the next generation of this church. I know there are others who aren't here today, but God, this is an incredible representation of who we are. That we believe that we didn't get here on our own and we know that these kids didn't get here on, our, on their own. 
But God, ultimately, we are connecting. We're reaching into the future to call out your blessing and your favor on their life. That God, no matter what the circumstances are that got them to this place, we pray your blessings on them moving forward. That God, every one of these kids, from the youngest to the oldest, God, would experience your love that we've been singing about today. They would experience your presence that, again, they would know when they walk into school, they don't walk in by themselves. That they're carriers of your love and your light. And so, God, today, I pray for the next generation. I pray, God, for your blessings on their life and not our own blessings that we would wish for them. God, help us as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and just attenders of this church. Not to just have our own dreams and our own plans for these kids, but God, to pray your blessings over their life. To reach into the future and claim your blessings on their behalf. And God, I pray that every one of us would tell them the stories. They would, we would tell them the stories of our heritage, of our lineage. We would tell them the stories of the faith. We would tell them how we got here. We would connect them to the stories that we were told by those who came before us. So that they're connected to something larger. And God, we thank you. I thank you for a church that loves the next generation. And God, we're believing for even greater things in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Caleb, you excited about that speaker right there, buddy? I like it. I like it. We're so proud of you. Look right here real quick. Look at me for just a second before we send you out. We are so proud of you. Again, youngest to oldest, it doesn't matter what age you are. I want you to know that we're proud of you. If this is your first time here today, or you've been coming here since we launched, or somewhere in between, we want you to know we love you. We're glad you're here. If your family's here with you, whatever that family looks like, we're glad your family's here. And you have a place here. You belong here. You belong to us, all right? We love you. We're so proud of you. And we want to continue to see God do something in you. We believe in the next generation.